there a doctor in the house? Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. Doctor. 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 And doctor. It's time for Advanced Medicine Monday with Dr. Rashid Batar. I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. I'm a doctor, not a coal miner. The doctor is in. Hey, the doctor is in somewhere, and he's international. I guess I am for international, Dr. Batar. Welcome back, Advanced Medicine Around the World. Thanks, Robert. Yep, it's uh, it's the last few weeks have we have been doing the show from different parts of the country, uh, different parts of the world. So that has been the international flair has been added to for sure. Yes, right. And I still understand your English. You're doing very well. Yes. Uh, so far, I'm still maintaining the English language. <laughs> yeah, good, good job. And uh, listen, the uh, international best-selling book, The Nine Steps to Keep the Doctor Away. I hope you find copies of it everywhere you go. Uh, we'll, we'll probably be bringing up some of the, some of the uh, principles that you brought out in that book today as we dive into some of the subjects related to cancer. Uh, particularly one, Dr. Batar, this one's interesting. I briefly mentioned this yesterday with Super Don on the air. National Academy of Sciences, the NAS, agrees with the EPA that, get this, hold the phone, that formaldehyde causes cancer. Yep, the EPA with that formaldehyde causes cancer. Yeah, the, you know, it's, here's the funny thing about e- A lot of people forget that formaldehyde is also what is used for embalming bodies. It's an embalming fluid. Yes. So... This could be a moment of humor. We know that it uh, definitely uh, maintains death well, and you can actually look good. It, you know, once you've been preserved with formaldehyde, the body's not going to deteriorate any further. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's sim- similar to the Twinkie aspect. You know, a Twinkie can sit in a in its wrapper for what fifty years and never go bad. On a they, shelf. they are not finding how it can go bad here. It's like that they borrowed something from the tombs of the mummy in Egypt. Yep, exactly. And formaldehyde is exactly that. One of the reasons actually alcohol is not a desired consumable is because alcohol, as it goes through the liver, actually gets converted to formaldehyde. And um, so that's another reason. You know, there's there's many reasons. The formaldehyde is just not something that's conducive to life. But it's interesting that the EPA finally says that formaldehyde causes cancer. Well, it's the you know the National Academy of Sciences is interesting enough. I mean, it's supposedly a very respected group. Uh, finally agreed with something the EPA knew in this case. And the industry's chief lobby group, because it's always about like American Chemical Society, who represents what? Uh, industries that produce synthetic chemicals, and many of which are suspected, if not outright known, to be uh, carcinogenic. And finally, uh, the chief, uh, the industry's chief lobby group, the American Chemical Council, persuaded members of Congress that the findings of both the Environmental Protection Agency and the Department of Health and Human Services were wrong and should be reviewed by the NAS. And, and you know, so there's always this political and economic fighting back and forth between government regulators and industry and who's representing the industry to deny that which would be devastating to certain industries that would have to be, you know, held culpable finally in a cancer holocaust, we could say. Well, exactly. Uh, and the EPA, believe it or not, even though it's a governmental body, the EPA usually has been, at least from my review, mm-hmm. has, has seemed to be less prone to 
being swayed by industry. They seem to, for example, EPA has always said that mercury is the second most toxic substance known to man. The EPA has always talked about the safe levels of mercury within the vaccines and this and that. Not that there is any safe level, but right. the EPA has a standard that says this is how much is safe in the body and the vaccine schedule that was being used um, over the last 10 years is 60 times or more than 60 times the safe level of what the EPA says. So the EPA, even though it's a governmental body, has been uh, in stark contrast with many other governmental bodies, including the CDCs and the Institute of Medicine. So, and, the, and the FDA, of course. And the FDA, yeah. absolutely, and the FDA. So they've actually been, a lot of times, the lone uh, soldier. But um, here at the National Academy of Science, I- I'm actually surprised. It's actually the National Academy of Science that agrees with the EPA is what's surprising to me because, again, the National Academy of Science is usually on the same side as the Institute of Medicine, as the FDA, et cetera, et cetera. Right. When we're dealing with the uh, NAS and the EPA and the confusion around all of these claims, it's it's toxic, it's not toxic, it's carcinogenic, it's not carcinogenic. Uh, you have the uh, American Chemistry Council uh, saying in a statement, uh, the safety of formaldehyde is well studied and supported by robust science. But there's the conflicts of interest when I talk about these councils that represent industry. They're heavily invested in keeping uh, any liability or culpability of any of their members for producing uh, products that could harm anyone. So it's a very delicate balance, and it it often sways, uh, I think, on the side of industry that is being regulated rather than the the protection of the public. Yeah, I think that that would probably be a... A very conservative stance. I think it, it's not usually. I think it's always sways in the in the favor of the industry because, you know, let's face it, it's industry that has a mighty dollar and it's industry that controls the influence. It's the industry that has the lobbying groups. It's the industry that really controls the the political machinery. And mm-hmm. so the interests of the individuals, the interests of the public, is not more than often, but I would say. 99.9% of the time lost in the shuffle. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the perfect example is what hap- what's happened, I hate bringing up mercury again, but, but when we look at mercury from an industrial standpoint, you see mercury uh, in the vaccines, you see mercury as, um, you know, not only as preserves within the vaccines, but as uh, uh, other forms of mercury, for example, in amalgams, you see mercury now in in the light bulb industry. And of course, there's that component that we can say that, well, it's more than just that portion of mercury. We've got, we've got also more sinister plans, perhaps, where population control is the agenda. Well, let's put all those conspiracy realities or conspiracy theories aside. When you start looking at mercury and how detrimental it is, and the EPA has had a very consistent stand on the dangers of mercury, and yet we allow it to be used in medicine from the time that a baby is on the planet for less than an hour mm-hmm. throughout the entire uh, life from you know every type of vaccine in the dental amalgam aspect you are constantly introducing the second most toxic substance known to man into the human body constantly not just occasionally not some it's constant there there are people that would contest that and say well it's not constant well of course it's constant if you have one dental amalgam in your mouth and it's outgassing at five to nine nanograms per deciliter per tooth per day that's a constant infusion of the second most toxic substance known to man into the body and so what is the uh, ramification of that you know what is the biological burden that that the system has to deal with and we're just talking about mercury and then you start looking at all these other metals academy the, the lead and all these other aspects we know that uh if you look at lead and you look at 
Mercury in the LD1, if Mercury in the LD1, if lead in the same 100 people as an LD100 kills all 100 people, and then you start looking at other aspects like uh, uh, fluoride, for example, and then you've got the, uh, the persistent organic pollutants, you've got the toluenes and the benzenes and the organophosphates and the uh, fluorinated hydrocarbons, and now you're talking about formaldehyde like in this study. I mean, at each one of these things, it's one on top of the other on top of mm -hmm. the other that is just increasing the biological burden to a level that we can't even fathom it's it's just it's a testament to how incredible the physiological system how is. how do we survive it at all you're right and i i've said so many times over so many years especially when i first started learning about this i remember back in you know first the, the it's unfathomable to conceive of homeopathy having any value from a western mindset where if a little is good more is better and and yet you're dealing with infinitesimal amounts having tremendous impacts on the body and shifts and detox and other responses that we know personally firsthand and i i you know as i started talking to medical doctors that were not open and aware uh, in my own attempts to try and talk to them, they were, you know, often dismissive of my discussion of toxic poisons at minute amounts like parts per million of these pesticides, or even we could say formaldehyde being problematic. And they said, well, no, there's, that's just not enough. Yet, as you just pointed out, and we've said this so many times before, it's not one thing at parts per million. It's not hundreds of things at parts per million. It's perhaps not even thousands of things at parts per million. It's many thousands. And at, at what point do you say, well, maybe that adds up and actually does cause a problem? Exactly. And that's the, that's the question. And, and the question is really not a hard question at what point. I think it's at the beginning point is causing a problem. It's just the testament to the system how incredibly tolerant it is and how able it is to withstand the assault that we as humans put into our system so mm -hmm. you know again I, I know we've said this in the show before but you take sugar and you put it inside a car engine that engine is going to sputter around and it's going to last for maybe another two three minutes and then it's dead and you're never going to get that engine started again but look at the human body we put in sugar constantly and I mean, again you know sugar is just one of millions of things we put in our body that probably is not very you know it's not ideal for us but the point is that we really abuse the hell out of our systems, and, and it still goes. And then we, we're amazed at people getting cancer, you know, the increase in cancer and the increase of heart disease and how it's the, the now cancer being the number one cause of death and how they're starting to look at the genes and the genetic aspects and trying to come up with more uh, chemotherapeutic and radiation therapies that will be more uh, unique in their approach and be more selective in, in killing the cancer. You know, it's not even about the killing the cancer aspect. They're, again, forgetting that it's the messenger. You know, it's the, in fact, one of my, one of my feature slides that I get more con, uh, conversations created and more uh, comments that are made, this, the cure for cancer, it's actually prevention. That's the, that's mm -hmm. the cure for cancer. It's, it's a preventive model because cancer is an accumulation. It's almost like saying, how do you stop wear and tear on a tire? Well, <laughs> a tire, by using it, by definition, you're going to wear and tear it. On, you know, it's going to wear and tear on the tire. So it's about prevention. It's about how do you use that car in the best pa uh, possible manner to maintain the life of that tire. And that's what we're sure. dealing with. Because as a planet's getting more polluted, the chances of uh, acquiring cancer are just that much more. So it's really... The key to cancer is prevention. Yeah, and in the context of the living system versus the pure mechanistic viewpoint, like you talked about pouring sugar in a car engine and it's dead, 
pouring sugar or something equivalent in a human engine and there's an adaptation response because it's a living system. Uh, true for the tire perspective, if we're really a living system, the tire would regenerate based on doing the right thing, which is not what happens in a, you know, a non a living thing, a true mechanistic system without a living entity, that life force that you know we're imbued with as living, breathing entities and true of animals as well. And so we got to integrate those kinds of things, and we do, and you talk, you talk about it, and I think a lot of that insight is revealed in uh, the nine steps to keep the doctor away. So we're going to take a break here, first break. Dr. Batar is with us. We are doing some advanced medicine here, as we do each and every week on Mondays. Check it out at medicalrewind.com if you miss an episode, and we'll be back with lots more, including a very big listener question. Rock in the health world to the power of radio. It's the Robert Scott Bell Show. Continuing now with Advanced Medicine Monday, the international edition with Dr. Rajiv Bittar. And we got a question of the day coming in from a guy named Steve. And I think it builds right on what we were just talking about, too, because he's very concerned about cancer. Uh, and he says, I uh, recently started listening to your show after seeing you in interviewed in Ty's documentary series, The Quest for the Cures, which he loved doing, watching. And he said his family has been ravaged by cancer, which sounds a lot like what Ty went through, which is what motivated him to do so much good work. Uh, brain cancer took his sister's life when she was just 27. That was back in 1998. A sarcoma took another sister's life when she was just 19 in the year 2000. And his brother was diagnosed with colon cancer when he was 37. And this was more recent in 2013. He's currently in remission, according to what Steve's telling us. But he realizes that he needs to change the terrain of his body to prevent it from coming back, especially after the conventional medical treatments he's undergone. So sounds like his family was more aligned with traditional oncology based on what I'm getting here. Uh, but this guy, Steve, is writing us. He's been paying attention to what we're doing. That's a horrific history of having family members that have been lost to cancer that young. Uh, that's that's a very sad, but unfortunately, it's probably more. I think it's picking up. The pace for, of cancer is picking up. And, you know, we're talking cross-generational. That's one thing we, we didn't mention last segment, but we sort of hinted at it. It's not even just the exposure in our lifetime. It's the bioaccumulation over generations now, which have accelerated over the 20th century since the dawn of the, the, the Industrial Revolution. I mean, we've far outpaced it. Uh, last week, there was a big story about uh, mercury uh, in the oceans, two to three times the, the levels at the, since the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. Now they're finding in, in, in oceans around the world. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's just pretty amazing how, how things are uh, changing and how they have changed, which completely, if you look at it from uh, a linear aspect, completely explains the reason for the increase in the incidence of cancer and heart disease and many of these other chronic debilitating disease processes. And it also shows how ludicrous the argument is, oh, well, the reason we've got a higher incidence of diagnosis today is because we have better modalities of diagnosing it. That's just mm -hmm. absurd horse manure. The reason we have such a high incidence now compared to back then was because we have more 
industrial components that we're having to deal with. There's more pollution that the system is dealing with. There's more deficits within the nutritional value of what we're taking in. There's, there's more depletion in the, in the quality of the food and the soils that uh, we're growing our food sources, more pollutants that are being introduced into the meats and milks and all that type of stuff. And then, of course, what we're breathing in, what we're exposed to. And that's the reason that there's a higher incidence of cancer. It has nothing to do with better diagnostics. Better diagnostics, exactly. Now, he says he's been studying natural approaches to cancer for a number of years, but he claims not to have seen many experts that delineate between preventing and treating cancer according to what caused or could potentially cause the cancer in the first place. You know, it's interesting, as we were talking about, the cause is maybe the cure and things like that. Uh, I think he, he's referencing a book. I don't know if you've seen I don't think I've seen this book, The Cancer Killers, where they also say the cause is the cure. Uh, we would agree, and I think he agrees, that poor diet is a leading cause of cancer today, and he would agree with that. However, he says in the case of his family, he can't help but think that there are one or more other external factors at play beyond poor diet. Um, and, and he lists a few of these here of his suspicions, one of which he says uh, may, his childhood home may have been on contaminated ground, like radioactivity or something. I mean, this is a real, real potential cause as well, I suppose. Robert, you've heard me say this in all the times, you know, we've talked on the air and when we've been together lecturing. Cancer is always one of two things. It's either one, it starts because of a lack of nutrition, some kind of a specific mineral or vitamin or, or some type of deficiency on a nutrient level at a very specific point where it was needed and that causes that particular cell to become dysfunctional, the suppression of apoptosis, the program suicide death is basically nothing more than a survival mechanism where that uncontrolled cellular proliferation aspect kicks in. And so in order to do that, this apoptosis, which is program cell suicide, that's designed to basically spare the whole so the one cell will kill itself in order to protect the rest of the cells, that system, that protective mechanism is suppressed so that it now doesn't self-destruct in order to create that proliferative state so that it can survive. It goes into that same scenario that a tree will do right before it dies. It rapidly pollinates in order to try to perpetuate itself. Right. That's what the cell is doing. It's going into the rapid proliferative state in order to try to survive. Well, why does it happen? Why does that occur? It occurs, one, because of a specific nutrient deficiency. When I say specific, I don't know what the specific is. I'm just saying in that particular point in time for that particular cell, there was something specific that was missing. It could be a mineral, it could be a vitamin, it could be something, but there was something that was missing that caused that trigger to be elicited. Well, let's, let's go further into that missing element as well as additional toxic burdens Steve has asked us about. And uh, we'll continue talking about prevention, cure, reversals of cancer today with more advanced medicine with Dr. Bittar after this break. The Robert Scott Bell world through the power of radio it's the robert scott bell show if you ever miss an advanced medicine monday you can always go to medical rewind that's an easy way to get there also we have links up in the show notes to the nine steps to keep the doctor away as well as dr batar's uh, practice those of you who want to go see him 
drbatar.com, D-R-B-U-T-T-A-R.com. Check it out. It's all linked up at robertscottbell.com. Now, uh, Dr. Batar, we're kind of following up on this question. It's very in-depth, a lot of, lot of angles that Steve is asking about. The first one I mentioned was potential childhood exposures. You know, if, you're, if you lived on contaminated ground, he, he mentions radioactivity as one possibility. But he also brings up a second possibility, heavy prescription drug use while his mother was pregnant could have caused problems for uh, his siblings as well. Um, relationship there, any studies, anything you know of as far as prescription drugs during pregnancy? Well, let's back up, Robert. Let's go back to where we, before we took the break, sure. before we go to the prescription drug aspect. And that first one we talked about was some type of a nutritional deficiency. The other one is some type of toxicity, uh, some type of a toxic burden. Now, that toxic burden could be the metals, it could be the chemicals, it could be an opportunistic, it could be an energetic toxicity, it could be pharmaceutical, whatever it is, something within the foods. But it's a toxicity aspect. And generally speaking, it's not just either the nutritional deficiency or a toxicity issue. It's usually more often than not, I would say the vast majority of time, it's a combination of both mm-hmm. that cause this, this, causes this disruption that then eventually elicits into the oncogenic process and, and causes the, the cascade to begin that we commonly refer to as cancer. So it's one or the other. So the pharmaceutical aspect or, or the toxicity aspect, it's all the same thing. So there's either a deficiency or it's something that shouldn't be in the body, which I define as a toxicity. Anything that shouldn't be in the body is considered a toxicity. Well, it's one or the other, usually both. And that's what the cause of cancer is. And what we do when we're treating cancer is we're trying to eliminate both those issues. We're trying to get the nutritional basis back to where it should be, uh, usually actually overcompensate for it and get rid of the toxicity. And that's the same thing that you do from a preventive standpoint. I mean, the, the difference between a patient coming to me and saying, look, I got a high incidence of family, um, I have a high family incidence of cancer uh, and I'm concerned versus somebody who comes and has a full-blown cancer stage four that we're treating. The only difference between those two people is the intensity of how we hit them with treatment and the, uh, some of the specific immune modulators that we would do because we look at the immune panel. Uh, and we make a decision where their immune system is and then base everything on that if they don't have a cancer. And I'll give you a perfect example. In fact, it's, uh, it's, it's perfect to timing because uh, two weeks ago, I had one of my patients that we had a consult with, uh, maybe about two months ago, he came down, he had a very interesting history. He had never had any problems but started having some issues with the urination, went to see a uh a uh, urologist, urologist uh, did a prostate exam and then did a biopsy and uh, gave, said that he didn't think anything was going on, but keep an eye on it. Then he went to a different urologist. And basically my diagnosis for him that he was a victim of aggressive prostatic biopsies mm-hmm. because he ended up having something like five or six biopsies. And then he had uh, been diagnosed with prostate cancer. They had scheduled him for surgery. And uh, based on everything that I was getting from his history, I didn't think that he really had cancer, but I put down, you know, victim of uh, aggressive, and that's actually my diagnosis, a victim of I don't of think that's, that's in the, uh, uh, what ICD-9. do you call it? The, 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 yeah, yeah, it's not. It's, but it's, uh, it's, it sounds very accurate. I mean, listen, if <laughs> well, you I didn't take... know what else to put down, because that's, the, you know, to me, when I put down a diagnosis, is so that I know exactly in my mind when I'm reviewing the chart later on. Right. So I know exactly what's going on with the patient. That's what I thought. And, and I also put down benign prostatic hypertrophy, because he obviously had a outlet obstruction issue and uh sure his psas were you know borderline they were just a little bit above normal anyway so he comes in does a workup like cancer just we were treating him just like cancer we get everything done all the process done 
And um, there's two tests that I do. We've talked about both of those tests before on the air. A couple of years back, we talked about the uh, Oncoblot, and we've also talked about the lymphocyte subpopulation that I use to assess the immune system. And we get these tests back, and the first thing was the Oncoblot showed that he had no prostate cancer. He had no cancer. So that's fantastic. So I told him, I said, you know, you want the good news or the bad news? He said, well, you know, give me the give me the good news. And I said, well, the good news is you have no cancer. And the guy was like, you know, he almost leaped through the phone. He was so uh, <laughs> excited. And so was I, obviously. It's, it's always a good feeling to be able to tell a person that. But the bad thing was that his immune system was not good. His immune system showed it was a it was a perfect picture of a person that doesn't have cancer, but you can almost guarantee that they are going to have cancer within the next two or three years unless they do something drastic because their immune system is failing. But that's a major heads up to be able to say this before it's actually manifest. Absolutely, because cancer, remember, is by definition impossible if you have an intact immune system. If your right. immune system is functional and working well, there is no way you can get cancer. That's just the bottom line. If people say, oh, well, there's nothing wrong with my, can- my immune system, Dr. Tom, I'm here for cancer. It's like yeah. your immune system is annihilated. If it wasn't, then you, you know, if, if you, you didn't have an issue with your immune system, you wouldn't have cancer. Right. I have people uh, that would consult with me and be very proud that over the last 20 years, they had never had a cold or a flu. And I said, exactly. well, that that's great, but you, why are you presenting with cancer? Don't tell me that that was a good twenty years because that didn't happen overnight. Exactly, Robert. That is such a key thing. If you think that you are healthy because you haven't been sick a day in your life, and and I've had the same thing. So many people say, I don't understand how I got cancer. I've never been sick a day in my life. It is not normal not to be sick because exactly. your immune system is designed to respond mm-hmm. to any type of an imbalance. And a challenge have- of anything, appropriate response is a healthy response, aesthetic response. It's acute uh, disease, and it's not something that is chronic. It's different. And when you're chronically ill, sometimes you don't have the strength to manifest the symptoms associated with an acute disease, and you are wrongly fooled into believing that you're still healthy. Exactly, because your immune system, the reason you're not sick is, remember, when you get a runny nose or you got a sore throat like I have right now or mm-hmm. whatever, that means your immune system is intact. If you get a fever, that's a good sign because your, your immune yes. system is intact. If you don't get fever, you don't get a runny nose, you don't get a sore throat, you don't get it, that means that your immune system isn't working. You, you have a false sense of security thinking, oh, mm-hmm. I'm so healthy, I don't get sick. Right. Well, that is possible. There are two extremes. That is possible that you are that healthy, that you don't get sick, in which case you're never going to get cancer or... If your immune system is just so damaged that it's not able to respond to a cold or respond. Right. remember, how does a patient with AIDS die? A patient with AIDS doesn't die of AIDS; they die of a cold. They die of pneumonia. They <laughs> right, die a basic a, thing a that a healthy treatment. person would would whisk off their shoulder like a, a slight brush. And I'll never forget. Now I've said this on the air before: the time when my mentor was working with me to get me well. When I called him up, thinking I was dying, I had a high fever, and rather than getting a compassionate Rather than getting a compassionate voice on the other side of the call, he's laughing and congratulating me on that's getting right. stronger and healthier. Exactly. He's happy and he's celebrating because he knows the one thing that's good, your immune system's working. It's, it's coming it's back to life. Exactly. Happy. And I was complaining. Yeah. Very, very common and uh, misunderstanding and uh, very important for people, I think, uh, in, in the process of what we're trying to do, which is empower people with knowledge because mm-hmm. the power to heal is theirs. Yes. It is important for people to understand this very component that when your body responds by becoming uh, reactive in the sense that it gets a fever. Symptomatic, a, yes. That, that is a good sign and, yeah. and celebrate it because it means, you know, it's mm-hmm. working. 
They well, exactly, but it, it's not something I think typically taught in medical school, and I certainly didn't know from my Western upbringing that it was positive because most of the time we were taught to suppress those symptoms, including fever, and that's largely why these people that say they never get sick don't get sick because they've been suppressed out of the ability to respond, and a, there's a false sense of security associated with that. Yeah, absolutely, and that's one of the things that um – and being empowered with knowledge and understanding how the body works and, and what it means when you're not getting sick. And I, I'll bet you that more than 80% of the patients that come to me with cancer, that's one of the common things that they mm-hmm. say, I just don't understand how I got sick. I got cancer. I've never been sick a day in my life. I've never seen the doctor. I never needed yeah, to, blah, yeah. blah, blah. This is so revealing again. I'm glad we're having this discussion. I appreciate Steve writing in and asking it and prompting this today. Uh, I mentioned the heavy prescription drug use if a mom is pregnant. There's got to be a, a problem with that because you're throwing toxic poisons in uh, and a developing fetus, I don't think there's a genuine protection to that level of toxicity. Uh, well, there, there's not. Um, but again, it falls into that bigger picture category of toxicity. And right. I try to keep things as broad spectrum as possible, Robert, because when we tend to start getting really fine-tuned into you know, which drug, if, if it's like which thing, top yeah. toxicity and then goes to which drug and then, you know, what's the mechanism, what class of that drug or this I, or that. I sort of think that that's what Steve wants us to do. And I, and yeah, I, I understand. It's a, it's a hole. You yeah. create a hole for yourself if you do that. Because when you start becoming that specific, that's the problem with medicine. We became so specific, we mm-hmm. forgot that everything is connected. You know, you've got the cardiac surgeon that's dealing with the with the anatomy aspect but then you've got the cardiologist and then you've got the cardiophysiologist and then you've got you know yeah you don't see the forest anymore and the relationship between everything and and then and then steve says well maybe it's just my family has unusually bad genes yeah again and this is another common misconception now Mm -hmm. there is such a thing as genetic predisposition and there are certain things that are familial in that your body's ability to excrete certain metals, for example. Right. Let's look at APOE or the COMT lesion or the polymorphisms like the methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase enzyme deficiency or the glutathionase transferase issues. There's many different pathways that have a genetic component. So that that can that can contribute, but make sure you understand it's not leading to cancer. It's leading to an inability of the body to deal with that particular type of toxicity. And the way to deal with that is to be cognizant of it and not put yourself in that situation. Meaning that if you are an autistic child or a family that has autistic children, remember that if that autistic child had been born on an island where there was no mercury exposure, the mother had not been given any type of um, uh, vaccines that didn't have maternal amalgams in her mouth that was right. contributing to the burden. The child didn't have any vaccines. There was no tuna brain food that they were feeding the child. There was no combustion of fossil fuels that they were inhaling mercury, etc., etc. That child, I don't care what the issue would have been, right. that child would not have had autism would because it's expressed. a mercury environmental trigger that caused it. Right, exactly. And then, you know, here Steve goes on and he says, you know, he understands that eating like loads of nitrates and charred meats that can contribute to certain cancers. Uh, so I don't eat those things. All right. So you're, you're making subconscious choices about things. Uh, but it, it, like I said, it's not just one pathway. It's just one thing. It's everything. So anything that you genuinely have control over, you want to take control over that. I mean, beyond that, there's prayer, you know, and we believe in that. Absolutely, we do. But we're asked to do that, which we have genuine control over in reducing our risk of, he says, contracting cancer. I look at it as more or less creating cancer. I think that that's probably an accurate way of putting it too, Robert. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
So if, if we're going to address this, he, he does things, and, and we're almost on a break here, but we'll come back and wrap it up. He's talking about eating better, exercising. He, he lists prayer, vitamin D, rebounding, immune system support, beta-glucan, far-infrared saunas. He's doing a lot of things, but he's a little concerned. Maybe there's something more. So let's get to that something more after the break with Dr. Batar right here on the Robert Scott Bell Show. Live around the world, the Robert Scott Bell Show. Scott Bell Show. All right, we continue to answer Steve's question, which if Steve asked it, there's probably thousands of other people with similar questions, so we appreciate that. And Dr. Batar, he's he's willing to do just about anything, it sounds like. He says, I'd happily add 100 more things to the list of good things I'm already doing if I could reduce my risk all the more. And, of course, then what do we do? And I don't want to overwhelm anybody, but uh, we also do want to encourage folks to take control of their lives. That's exactly right, Robert. Uh, we do want to encourage people to take control of their lives. And when somebody says that if there was 100 more things that I can do to prevent it, I'd be happy to do it if it would really reduce the risk. Mm-hmm. I want you to look at the balance, though, because the stress that you induce on yourself to try to get all these extra 100 things, because some people are very, very anal retentive, and they will stress themselves out to that point. And any benefit that they would have gotten from doing those little things that are left over is actually negated by the stress that they induce in themselves in order to try to comply with that component. Mm-hmm. You, you follow what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. I mean, look at the, the crazy life I live. I'm really hardcore on nutrition and stuff. But, you know, if, if something happens, like one guy fed me on a, on a – I did a Tenth Amendment Center event, and I was supposed to get a Chipotle, and he brought me a Qdoba, and I took one bite of it, and I knew it was wrong. And he, 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 he turned ghostly white, thought he was going to kill me. And I just laughed it off. It's like, no, I'll be okay. You know, just relax. It's okay. But you're right. There are people, and that's where you get into the real orthorexic, where it's such an obsession that it overwhelms and, and imbalances you emotionally. Exactly. And that's the part that I was going to make was that emotional psychological component mm-hmm. of trying to keep up with a schedule and a regimen that is not possible for a long-term basis that stress that you're going to induce in yourself is, is just not beneficial. So it really all comes down to balance. Mm-hmm. It comes down to having a understanding of how your body works. There are certain people that can eat uh, buffalo hot sauce and not have a problem. And other people <laughs> have cramping sensation. Well, understanding, okay, I tend to get cramping with buffalo sauce and maybe I should just limit it versus, I'm not saying whether it's good or bad or the sugar content or whether it's made of GMO. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about how your body responds to certain things. Right. And just listen to your body because your body's going to tell you. Some people eat a lot of fruit and, you know, pineapple may give them that, the sores in their mouth. Other people don't have that issue. Well, listen to your body. There's an inflammatory cascade that's being created by this particular fruit or vegetable, whatever it may be, typically may be considered to be great, but your body's not responding to it in a favorable manner. It means that your system is somehow imbalanced in the fact that it's not dealing with that particular component. But just remember, it's kind of like George Burns. George Burns smoked. I think he died at 99 years of age. He right. smoked all his life, and he survived it. And I know I had a lung cancer patient that was 24 years old, stage four, who came to me who'd never smoked a cigarette a day in his life. Well, some people genetically are just not able to handle combustion of fossil fuels. He was a guy that was a race car driver, and he got cancer and unfortunately ended up dying. 
But the point that I'm making is that some people can handle certain things and other people can't. It doesn't mean that we're going to put ourselves in those situations. Just because we see George Burns smoking cigarettes, we say, oh, well, George Burns did it. So that's, right. You know? You're not George Burns, right? Exactly. <laughs> it's like jumping out of a plane. Your chute didn't open. You survived the fall. That doesn't mean, oh, well, you know, I survived the fall last time. I can jump without a parachute. It doesn't <laughs> yeah. quite work that way. Apply a little common sense, people. That common sense is just, it's just rooted on every page of uh, The Nine Steps to Keep the Doctor Away by Dr. Batar. He can blush if he wants to, but it's that good. And I, I do encourage you to, to pick it up. If, and, uh, you know, Steve, if you, if you haven't read Dr. Batar's book, my goodness, but you're, it sounds like you're doing a lot of good things. But again, balance is everything. You don't want to overwhelm any aspect of it. But every one step you do towards a cleaner life, and that could be mentally and spiritually as well, I think it could be, it is, uh, it is. is going to pay back dividends. Yeah, it is, Robert. It's that emotional, psychological, you know, that's the fifth step, that spiritual part. That's the seventh step of the seven toxicities. And the facts on toxicity.com, it has the videos of all the seven toxicities. But understanding what we talked about in the beginning, it's a de- deficiency in the nutrient level or it's a toxicity, usually a combination of both. You can go to facts on toxicity.com and watch those videos. It doesn't cost you a dime. Uh, you know, like Robert said with the book, that's great. But again, you know, it's all about resources so the facts and toxicity will outline those seven toxicities for you the nine steps is more to tell people what they can do and and we've had so many patients in fact the reason that book was really written honestly robert between you and me and we've talked about this off the air yeah was a primer for people that were dealing with cancer i I don't say that in the book but that's really what it was written for because cancer is the ultimate uh success versus failure when it comes to health it's the big and, scary you're right and, and that's why exactly. steve wrote it so listen we're out of time here another great advanced medicine monday segment dr batar international you you should travel more it's even better when you're gone <laughs> <laughs> oh no i appreciate that maybe i'll take you up on that yeah but I, the next trip like this i want to go with you that's the only thing all right Deal. So, we'll do it well dr batar thanks so much we keep reminding each and every one of you out there that listen and we love you for it that the power to heal is definitely yours. The Robert Scott Bell Show. The Robert Scott Bell Show.